0: Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Johnson. I'm with the Office of the Chief of Public Affairs, Media Relations Division. Uh, Just for everyone's administrative notes, we will be recording this. It will be posted on Divis later on today, so if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. Um, Today's press conference was focused specifically on installations, the Army's platform of readiness. Before the Army can significantly increase readiness, there must be an infrastructure to support Army manning, training, equipping, and leader development. Army readiness occurs on Army installations where soldiers live, work, and train. To meet these missions, the Army requires ready and resilient installations to enable regional engagement and global responsiveness. Installations ensure our operational forces have the foundational support required to prepare soldiers and their units to train, deploy, fight, and win. Today's panel is hosted by Assistant Secretary Hammack. She is the primary advisor to the Secretary of the Army and Chief of Staff of the Army on all Army matters related to installation policy, oversight, and coordination of energy security and management. Her guests, along with Ms. Hammack, our other guests panelists are Lieutenant General Gwen Bingham, the principal military advisor to the chief of staff of the Army and assistant secretaries of the Army for all matters related to installations; Lieutenant General Semenite, who is the chief of engineers and commanding general of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and Lieutenant General Dahl, commanding general of installation management command. I will now turn over to the Honorable Catherine Hammack to provide a brief opening statement. Thank you very
1: much. We had a session this morning for about two hours talking about installations, installations of today, installations of the future, and what we need to prepare for in the future. One of the things that we talked a lot about was cyber and how installation, opportunities for installations in the future through cyber and some of the challenge they, they may face. We talked briefly about some of the the fiscal challenges that we're having with the Budget Control Act, and the pressure it's putting on maintaining our installation infrastructure. We also talked a bit about Army Strategy. So we just released Army Strategy 2025 and are in the process of working on Strategy 2035, which is Installations of the Future, and what a future installation could look like and how we can prepare for that. So what I'd like to do is give each of the other panelists a chance to talk briefly and then we'll answer questions.
2: Thank you, Secretary Hammack. Uh, yes, we, I appreciate the opportunity enjoyed the discussion this morning. Uh, one of the things that I was talking about in my presentation was looking at the challenges that currently face installations. Uh, as it relates to infrastructure, military construction and the services that we provide to our soldiers, civilians and families. And in those uh, challenges, we talked a little bit about uh, looking at ways that we could mitigate those challenges in terms of opportunities. We are uh, investing in a divest, reshape and invest strategy to help get after some of the excess infrastructure that we have and the uh, increasingly degraded facilities that we have. Uh, Our focus is to make sure we build resilient and ready soldiers so that they can do their missions around the globe. Uh, One of the ways that we can get after those mitigations, and you heard a lot of discussion on it, I talked about it too, as it relates to partnerships, and so where we know that we have a requirement that we cannot meet. It's our uh, ability to go outside our gates and try to enter, to enter into partnerships both at the local, state, and at the federal level to help mitigate those gaps. I'll take, look forward to your questions.
3: So good morning. Lieutenant General Todd Simon, I'm glad to be here today. I am the Chief of Engineers and also the CG of the um, United States Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, we do about uh, $28.5 billion a year in about 110 different countries. But the main thing is, is that we continue to be uh, in three different big dimensions. We are we support DoD. And, uh, and I take very, very passionately uh, my requirement to be able to work for Miss Hammock and General Dahl and all of the soldiers and the families that are out in those installations and supporting those installations. We also have a very, very large civil works account. I won't talk about that today. And we also work in the support of FEMA. Uh, in our portion of the brief today, really talked about efficiency, sustainability, and resilience. I am the new chief of engineers. I've only been in four months. One of the biggest single focuses I'm pushing my people to do is deliver the program to be able to make sure that we can figure out how we can do a better job of executing those projects that uh, MCOM and, uh, and the Army give us to do, but also where can we find savings through innovation and technology to be able to return those savings back into General Dahl, so he can we can be able to build a building at a better value, be able to get more years out of that time, and be also to be able to save energy, so those savings can be invested back into the installation. I just want to end with another point, and the, our, our Chief of Staff has said very, very, uh, very emphatically, readiness is our number one priority and there is no number one, uh, no other number one. That could very easily perceive that readiness for our warfighting forces is gas and tanks and bullets and to be able to do our warfighting mission, but you've got to be able to expand the definition of readiness to be able to really understand the utility of what an installation brings. It's the second and third order effects how this, this the installation supports taking care of our soldiers and our families. We've said for several years, you recruit the soldier, you retain the family. So if an installation doesn't have the right um, morale and welfare, if it doesn't have the right hospitals out there, if the housing is old, if we've got challenges on keeping a quality of life, then the families very easily are going to get a chance to be able to to say, maybe there's something else I should be doing. So readiness correlates back into keeping the best soldiers and the families inside the Army team. It's be able to have training ranges where we continue to be a world-class fighting force. So don't think that when we say readiness, it's just about readiness on the battlefield. It's the readiness to be able to be resilient and to be able to make sure that those families and those soldiers have what they need in the generating force so that then therefore when they're out in the operating force they know that somebody's taking care of their families they're going to stay with the army if the army continues to take care of them.
4: So the three uh, three areas that I addressed uh, this morning uh, during the press conference were uh, we really we are a supporting organization so installation management command has 75 installations around the world but we don't run the installations just to run the installations. We run them in support of somebody, something, some mission. So we really, uh, the, the first thing I addressed was how we are organizing ourselves within Installation Management Command inside the continental United States to better provide installations that help to build readiness and build it uh, with a, a degree of urgency that's necessary right now uh, to the larger organizations, the ACOMS, like Training and Doctrine Command, Forces Command, Army Material Command. Um, So we're doing that. The second point is that uh, we're under some uh, stress from the fiscal environment over the last several years. Uh, That stress and that fiscal environment has driven us to look at how we do business. So we're looking at changing some of our processes so that we can deliver our services uh, a little bit more efficiently because there's fewer resources. It's also driving, as General Bingham uh, mentioned, towards partnerships, which frankly is, is very welcome because there's some great opportunities out there for partnerships. And I'm talking mainly with folks uh, outside the gate, private and public partnerships or, or uh, uh, public-public partnerships as well. Uh, and it, perhaps some consolidation of function uh, as well. And then the third point I made, and I hope I was clear when I made it, is that what we don't lack is uh, talent and leadership and passion and people who love what they're doing. There's an abundance of that. So it's really a matter of organizing ourselves uh, and building as much readiness uh, as urgently as we can with the resources that are available to us.
0: Thank you for your comments. Uh, We will now open it up for questions. I would just remind our reporters, one question and a follow-up, and we have some additional social media questions if anyone has anything to add. So we'll go ahead and open it up.
3: here Serbu from Federal News Radio. Wanted to ask for an update on the situation with declining
5: BAH and the associated financial impact to your housing providers. Ms. Hammack, you had talked a few months ago about potentially assessing some sort of rent to soldiers who are served by those providers. I wonder what the current thinking of that, uh, about that is,
0: and just an update on the whole situation, please.
1: Absolutely, and in regards to BAH, so the BAH is going down, it has gone down. And BAH changes when a soldier changes location, and so we don't have a 100% turnover on our soldiers a year. I was just talking to some who have been able to stay six years at the same installation. So the BAH goes up, but it never goes down. And so those soldiers that have moved into a new location and are receiving the lower BAH, for our RCI or RCI partners, they are then seeing a reduction in the amount of fees they're gathering. We have not had any of our RCI partners come to us with a a business case that shows that they've reached a point of uh, financial stress that we would have to change uh, our process, charge rents or do something else. What they are doing is reducing services. They might mow the lawns less frequently or uh, run your community center shorter hours. So, they are looking to how they can reduce the number of optional services they provide. Because what's interesting about the RCI partners is every one of them has gone above and beyond the contractual requirements of what they have to provide under the RCI partnership. And so we first want to see a reduction in optional services before we consider any other sort of mechanism. So to date, um, none of them have reached the point where we have to consider alternate means. But we do have locations, for instance, Fort Knox, where we've had a reduction in a BCT and we had expected housing to go down, but they opened up housing in the waterfall to the community And we've had people from the community come in, and many of those are paying higher than BAH as rent, which helps compensate for some of the losses. And so we're still at a balance point on our installations with the RCA partnerships and have had no changes to our soldiers. It looks like we might reach a a challenging point in two to three years. And so, yes, we are having conversations to determine what our options are. Uh, One of the options, for instance, if you live on base, you have a community center, a swimming pool, things provided to you at no additional cost. One of the things being considered is do we charge an HOA fee? like you would see if you were staying in the condo complex I'm in. I have an HOA fee I pay which covers tennis courts and swimming pools and and play areas and things like that. Maybe that is one of our options. And right now we're considering all options but have not made any decisions.
0: Anybody?
5: Else? Um, earlier today, um, were discussing about I, I used to Uh, Dave Vergan, Army News Service, and this morning uh, there was discussion about cyber, and I usually think of cyber attacks and cyber command, but it was used in a different sense of sensors, and I think it was Mr. McDaniels who was talking about it, and it was very interesting. I didn't know if he was talking about sensors similar to smart homes use or stuff like that. This is actually one question in two parts, because it was presented that way this morning from Lieutenant General Seminite's point of view as well. so, what are sensors being installed, or are they? And then, how will you are looking at not wanting to have to tear down an entire building, general, in um, 40 years and retrofit everything? You want to design buildings now for the next 40 years. How do you take into account sensors and these types of devices? Do you consult with industry experts in new plans? So it's a one question with two parts. So, Ms. Hammack, maybe in general, Seminite.
1: You know, the the whole uh, functionality offered by today's IT technology is interesting because a high-speed audio, visual, digital communications, they're really part of a a broader strategy, and so you have to look at the backbone of how those communications can occur on an installation, uh, running new fiber. And also the talk about uh, information in the cloud, I, I think he answered a question pretty well. You have to decide what you are going to put in the cloud and what you may not put into the cloud. You know, there's, Not everything we do is um, needs super high security. So I don't think we've figured out all of the opportunities that they offer us. Um, but we are investigating them, and, and so especially in building technologies, that's where you see a lot of this with a smart building where a lot of the things run themselves. We have it in some buildings where you might see uh, window shades come down by themselves at a certain time of the day or dimming sensors along the perimeter, and a lot of times they're autonomous, not necessarily linked into other systems, but they sense what's going on in their own environment and respond accordingly. But in order to have multifunctionality, you need that backbone on the installation. And that's where something General Dahl talked about is um, upgrading our installations and putting in that backbone is something that we're struggling to find some of the funding for.
3: Dave, let me uh, let me jump on what Ms. Hamrick said, though, and that's that multifunctional. We're looking at multi-use, type, Dave. We do not have the money in the Army to continue to be able to build every time we change different ways of doing it. So when we build a large office building, one of these big three- or four-star headquarters. Uh, we might have offices for the real senior people, but the rest of the people right now are in cubicles like you might envision. On the other hand, industry is going to something different. In our normal, the personalities are going to something. Different. We now have like hoteling in a lot of areas. So you'll walk in, you'll be at a desk maybe for a day, you might be teleworking another couple of days, you might be in another installation. So we need to be able to have those buildings to be able to be adaptable. We need some agility in there so we can't continue to re- re-clock these buildings every single time, but we can go in and tear out some old cubicles and then put in whatever people are gonna be working in and 20, 30, 40 years from now. So how do you continue to build this? So this is where I'm, I'm working off that same theme. Adaptability of the building, the shell probably stays the same, but think about the IT. How do we build an IT system that is adaptable? Does that mean chases you can inspect? At one point where you know SIPR you had to be able to see CIPR? So how do we think through what the requirement's gonna be 20, 30, 40 years out there so it's much more of an application than we can adapt, adapt to? I think the other challenge we have here, and we haven't turned the corner on this, we would love to have more and more smart buildings. Sensors, so it say, hey, the filter needs to be adjusted, and other things we've gotta do. The more those buildings are smart buildings, the more we can maybe bring down the level of people we need to have to be able to maintain it. However, because we know right now, the mcom has been under a drastic amount of cuts and it's hard for them to be able to maintain them on the ground. On the other chance, a smart building is harder to maintain when something does go wrong. So how do you balance the level of technology you build into one of these buildings with the reduced amount of people. And at some point, the smartest engineers coming out of colleges might not be going down to work for the DPW. How do we continue to build a building that the DPWs and the team that are out there that are resourced perhaps with not all the tools they need can continue to be able to keep this building up and going? So I think flexibility is what we're really looking for, given where resources might be and the ability to be able to make a capital investment, but doesn't commit us to a given way of that building performing for 20, 30, 40 years. Hey, General Bingham, Todd Lopez with Army News Service. You know, good afternoon, ma'am. Um, with
4: budgets declining the way that they are and with your responsibility for um, oversight of Army-wide, I understand, family programs, uh, and, and you too as well, I believe, General, uh, General Dahl, um, <clears throat> what can the Army do, what is the Army doing uh, to continue to provide the same level of service to soldiers uh, and families but with a declining budget? How are you going to make that happen, guys?
2: That's a great question, and one that uh, when I talked about, we are embarking upon a divest strategy, divest, reshape, and invest. We're also talking about divesting in some ways our, not only our infrastructure, but our service programs and, and uh, soldier and family programs. And so one of the things that we are looking to do, those uh, services, because that was the uh, context for which you asked your question, Those uh, services that are uh, of of lower use and uh, at uh, post-camps and stations, uh, Katie can talk to this, but we are divesting of those lower use uh, services for and opting for those that have high uh, use for our families and our soldiers. Uh, That's certainly one way of doing it. Another way is uh, reshape. So when we look at reshaping not only our infrastructure and our services, we are looking at ways that we can divest of excess so that we can optimize our dollars and be able to spend them on those services that we really need and that our families and our soldiers tell us that we need. So again, divest, reshape, and investing in in many ways uh, on the services side of the house, making sure that we give our soldiers and their families uh, those uh, services that they want and they need. We know what those are. Uh, we've gotten feedback from our senior leaders at the installations. We've gotten feedback from our soldiers and their families. And so we always are in a assess and reassess mode so that we're doing bang for the buck as it relates to those uh, services and, and uh, facilities that we provide them. Thank you. Yes,
4: Todd, let me just add. The, um, I like the way you asked the question, because the, the, you asked the question in a way that implies we're going to continue to deliver the services to that same standard. And I'll tell you, the Secretary of the Army and the Chief are absolutely committed you know, to taking care of our soldiers, taking care of our families, ensuring their readiness, ensuring their resiliency. Um, and, and so how do you do that under a decreasing of our, uh, budgets? Well, the force itself is decreasing. Um, So the amount of service that you have to deliver, you know, across the force, uh, is a little bit less. Um, So what we're looking at is uh, pushing some decision rights on how to sort this out down to the local level. I'm not saying local level. I'm talking about two-star, three-star generals at the installation with their garrison commanders, because each installation, although this we deliver the services there, their environments are different. Um, In some cases. Uh, As I was mentioning earlier today, some of our installations have a very, very large civilian footprint, very, very large demographic, because it's an Army Materiel Command type of installation. It's got a lot of civilians, contractors, uh, what have you. Others have large combat formations uh, with families, and the soldiers are deploying. So they have different needs there. So we can tailor uh, the services a little bit better, be a little bit more efficient, uh, but not roll back on our commitment to taking care of the soldiers and families and making sure you know, their resilient uh, partnerships is another one, you know, we mentioned earlier. I mean, there are alternatives. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who uh, want to help us take care of our soldiers and families. We can embrace that uh, and come together uh, in doing that. And in some cases, um, over the last decade or so, we find that we may have been over-delivering. Uh, you know, so when you're over-delivering a your service, you're not necessarily you may be reducing some of what you're delivering, but you're reducing it to what the original standard was rather than than over-delivering. So that's where we're starting. Mm -hmm. In
0: the back.
1: Hi, I'm Karen Jowers from Military Times. General Dahl, you had
0: issued a memorandum Uh, Well, you had instructed the installation about a month ago to reduce funding for MWR,
1: and that apparently has been pulled back And as you do a study on the needs. And first of all,
0: I wondered how long is this study expected to take? And number two, you had said that the shortages in funding were beginning to affect Critical services during this time. What
1: are services like firefighting and airfield maintenance at risk? Uh,
4: so, uh, first on the uh, on the policy. So I I directed a reduction in the cost um, or a reduction in the amount of money that's spent. Really, um, probably would have been better worded if I had said reduce the costs that you have. delivering your soldiers and family programs which goes back to the question that that Todd asked you know are we are we delivering in a very very efficient way can we deliver them better do we have slack in the system Uh, and that's really what I was asking my garrison commanders with their senior commanders at the local level to take a look at how you're doing and is there slack in the system is there savings there to put some some pressure on them at that level not to violate any standard that's out there about this is the established standard for a service program whether it's for a soldier or a family so don't cross over any of those lines uh, and and we gave some specific guidance on certain programs like child development services child and youth school services you know uh, you know none of those are going to be affected by it but look at some of the other areas um, so that's what they're doing um, when I put that out, I, I actually, so there was a video that I put out, um, and that was intended to communicate really to the civilian assistants, to the Secretary of the Army. Uh, and what I wanted to do was to try to communicate them as simply as I could, so that they can be helpful. Uh, so if we have a, uh, as General Bingham mentioned, if you have a particular activity that's open seven days a week and it's open for 15 hours a day, but you discover that on Tuesday nobody uses it and they this five hour period, well, you can save money by not having it open during that Tuesday five-hour period. But that means you're gonna put a sign up there that says it's not open on Tuesday from this five-hour period, you know, and somebody may actually show up and see that, and then there's gonna be a reaction to that. So I wanted, uh, you know, our civilian assistants the Secretary of Army to be aware of that, anticipate that, understand, you know, why we were doing that. Uh, so that was the point. Um, what we're doing now is, is uh, identifying that, reporting back to uh, the Secretary Uh, who i think correctly you know asked us you know slow down a little bit explain to me what it is that you're doing and really was articulating this is my priority uh soldiers families chief and we don't disagree on that of course Um, and uh, so so the pause is really to give me time to get the the 75 installations and the senior commanders to collect the data from them as to how they're going to be going about this you know and return to the secretary i don't think it's going to take more than uh, another month or two, you know, for us to do that, it's it's a lot of work because it's it's seven time zones and a lot of places. Um, but we really haven't identified any areas in the soldier and family programs that I think is going to cause any any concern, um, because again, we're going to be re- maybe returning to the standard where we've been over delivering or shutting down something that's got very very low usage or no usage, you know, at all. Um, in terms of risk uh to fire and emergency services and those kinds of things uh that's precisely why we're doing what we're doing so we don't hit a point where there is risk i mean this is risk mitigation anticipating uh going forward so certainly if the budgets continue to trend in the wrong direction uh, we're going to hit that point But i think we're a couple of years away from that uh but again this is anticipatory business uh you know let's see it coming you know and avoid that before it happens
0: oh, what time for one more question
5: is there any kind of focused?
3: Is, sorry, is there any kind of focused forum where you can go look in a given geographic area and say, here are the leases, here are the opportunities to bring stuff on, and likewise with civilian agencies, with GSA, do you, do you communicate with them to look for opportunities to bring some of the, that stuff on post?
1: I would say that the the answer is as varied as the question is. Uh, The leases come in many shapes and forms. Ideally, we would like to get out of all leases, yet for Army Recruiting Command, the recruiters have leases in the community, and we're never going to get rid of those leases. If we pulled all recruiters back to bases, we wouldn't have the coverage that we wanted. So to say we'll get rid of all leases um, is is not an informed uh, response. Leases also come in the form of services. So you might have a lease for someone, you might have a service that you've contracted for, but buried in that service is a lease for a warehouse to store things that are utilized in that service. And we're trying to understand those, so uh, so to pull those back onto the installations. And sometimes these are through the PEOs that they might have a contract that includes a lease of a building, and so we're trying to identify those. Uh, In other areas, it uh, when the base had a full um, complement of brigade combat teams there, there wasn't enough room, so other missions were pushed off installation. We're looking to see when those leases end, because certainly it's not cost effective to shortchange a five-year lease and have to buy it out in order to bring someone on base that can actually incur higher costs. So some of these are phased. But I I think uh, General Dahl answered it correctly, is we don't always have the right facilities in the right places. So in one case, you need more warehouse space. You don't have enough on base, so you're leasing in the community. It might be a base five states over that has excess warehouse space, but it's just not in the right place. And so trying to work our way through that, I was down in Huntsville, and uh, at the Redstone was working methodically. They had a catalog of all the leases occurring off base. They were methodically working their way through when those leases expired, what spaces were available, and doing a great job in restoration and modernization funds to restore buildings that maybe another agency had moved out of to bring people back on base. Um, As far as moving other federal agencies on base, not every federal agency wants to work in the secure environment that we are in. There are those that do, like the the FBI back to Redstone um, that moved on to base because it gives them the secure environment and also gives them some range capabilities they didn't have before. Um, We're looking at everything. Uh, it, it's a somewhat slow process. There is some work going on with the GSA to try and identify where there are opportunities. But at the same time, we're also working hard to put in systems to ensure that when another federal agency moves on to our base, we are appropriately invoicing them for the costs that they are adding to the installation to ensure we don't increase costs for the Army when we bring a tenant on. And, General Dahl, if you'd like to answer add to that
4: yeah so i i think that um in some places it happens pretty naturally you know in detroit arsenal for example mm-hmm. and in fact general Bingham's probably better qualified than him because she was the senior commander there but you know they have a lot of industry partners a lot of contractors a lot of folks in the government who work you know off of that installation you know that's a high rent area uh, you know now um, you know, Detroit Arsenal's not a very large footprint, but to the extent that people can come on, they want to come on, so they'll, they'll come to you uh, and, and then you can accommodate them to the extent that you can. In other places, you, you can go out and shop around a little bit, you know, so I know, for example, there's interest uh, in other government agencies, you know, for some of the footprint that we have at Fort Hamilton. Uh, which is in new york city i mean obviously that's very very high rent so if you want to have an activity whether it's fbi or counter or whatever it might be uh there's opportunities there and and there's also opportunities to partner at the local level the state level the city level you know and the federal level um and then again it's sharing the in the expense of running the installation so really it's a, it's a win-win-win for everybody but i don't know that there's a model i mean i really do think that it's really determined it's determined by the circumstances at that installation there's great opportunity great opportunity
2: no that's well and and as katie mentioned it's not a one-size-fit-all for all of our installations uh, where you may have an abundance of one service at one installation that might not be true uh, for another one um, I think uh, when we talk about divesting of some of those uh, low use, we're talking about some of the things, and it, again, it depends on what, where that installation is. Uh, it could be like as simple as an uh, arts and crafts or auto shop that's at an installation that's getting a low usage because perhaps outside the gates there's something else that our customers, if you will, are making good use. Uh, where you go to another installation, they don't have that and they deem that as something that they might be, have a uh, urgent desire to have as a service. So, uh, Katie and, and all of our landholding commands are looking at that, continually reassessing uh, to see where the greater need is, and so divesting of those services that are underutilized at that post camp station but then investing in services that uh, are high-desired services Mm -hmm. are what we're looking to optimize. And really what we're getting at is uh, uh, ridding ourselves of excess Mm -hmm. so that we can more optimize these scarce resources that we've been talking about.
0: Uh, Thank you, ma'am. That ends our question and answer period. Um, Before we close, we would like to give an opportunity to our panelists to provide any final thoughts. We'll begin with Secretary Hammond.
1: No, I appreciate the questions. And, you know, we are working hard to optimize resources. You know, the resources vary from water resources uh, to energy resources to monetary resources to human resources. And we tried to cover a little bit of that in our conversation today. Uh, General Dahl's doing a great job on trying to manage human resources having uh, reduced and working to reduce the number of employees in his command, but to optimize it to better serve the installation community and by reducing the size of uh, oversight for each of his regional commands uh, enables him to optimize and operate at a lower cost. Our, Our installations are doing a great job with renewable energy where we're obtaining energy at or lower than grid power costs. We've had over $800 million of investment by the private sector on our installations for renewable energy, and it's projected to save over $200 million over the life of the contract. So really getting power at a lower cost through renewable resources, that increases resiliency and readiness on our installations. So I think our installation teams are doing a great job trying to manage with reduced budgets, but that being said, what's suffering the most right now is our infrastructure itself, our buildings, Mm -hmm. where we don't have enough money to sustain them, which means they fall into disrepair and they need restoration and modernization, which is if you don't have enough money for restoration and modernization, you reach a point where you have to replace, and that's MILCON, and MILCON is at the lowest funding it's been in almost 30 years.
2: And so that is where we are probably struggling the most. And to that end, that is what I concern myself, my team, and I do as it relates to all things infrastructure and uh, services and trying to make sure that we program those scarce dollars where we can best optimize those dollars. And so we will spare no effort to get after what Secretary Hammack just talked about. Uh, We know that we are in challenging times. Our end strength has reduced. And so we do know that we have excess that we can get rid ourselves of both in uh, consolidation and demolition dollars. Uh, We also want to make sure that those services that we are providing to our families and our soldiers (coughs) are those which bring us bang for the buck in terms of what they desire as it relates to what resides on that installation in time. Uh, It's not a one-size-fit-all, and so we're tailoring across uh, our whole installation footprint, free active component, Army National Guard, and Army uh, Reserve. Uh, At the end of the day, we're trying to bring about ready soldiers and ready installations in balancing
3: the Army's priorities. There's no doubt that uh, there's significant budget shortfalls that affect the readiness of our Army, and you heard through how the ramifications of that are back on the readiness of our installations. I think if there's any saving grace though, and from a mitigation perspective is that is our people. Uh, whether any of the people that work for us are phenomenal, the passion they have to continue to try to find better ways of working together, and I would end on the word collaboration. Uh, there's no white space between the four of us. Ms. Hammack, General Bingham and I just went and spent three days in uh, Korea and Japan trying to make sure that we're all wired tight. Uh, general Dahl, he's on the he's on the execution end of the sphere he just held a big forum the other day with all the service providers who were out there on the installation trying to find out where are there ways we can work better i don't worry so much about redundancies they'll work themselves out but if there are gaps out there how can we be able to figure those gaps and find innovative ways of being able to continue to deliver quality services at a better value
4: yeah so this is very difficult work but it's very very rewarding work um you know so um that the, the pressure, the budgetary pressure that we've had on the infrastructure over the last many years as that it that has been underfunded and we've taken some deliberate risk there, you know, has really caused us to take a look at, and so now we know what our excess is. I mean, we see ourselves much more accurately you know, in our infrastructure as a result of that budget pressure. So, and I, and I think we now know we've got to climb out of this, and, and the senior army leadership knows that, you know, and they're advocating for us to get the additional resources Uh, for us to climb out of that. I think that's what we're doing in other areas of inflation management, is is applying that same kind of uh, discipline, that same kind of focus to see ourselves more accurately, to see where is their excess, where is their slack. Uh, And let's not take our eye off of the ball. As you do this, you have to focus narrowly on your priorities. And the secretary and the chief have been very, very clear on what their priorities are. It's it's readiness, it's urgent uh, establishment and sustainment of readiness. And its soldier and family programs, uh, so and, and taking care of our families, making them self-reliant, making our soldiers, uh, you know, ready. Uh, so the priorities are clear. Uh, I think the experience that we've had with infrastructure over the last, uh, you know, five, six, seven years, uh, informs us as to how we can take a look at a lot of the other uh, services and programs that we deliver, uh, and, and, and go about that similarly.
0: Thank you. I would like to officially thank our panelists for the insightful discussion and for the support that you provide our Army. This officially ends our press conference. Thank you for everyone that joined us today. Uh, we would ask that you stand by as our panelists leave the room. Thank you. See, I was like waving to you. I was, like, he was like, who are you?